today, we heard just a little while ago um, that lesson, uh, the gospel lesson, where uh, Jesus entered Capernaum and a centurion came to him, it said, to ask for help. Now, it was common for Jews to come to Jesus and ask for help, but not a centurion to come and ask Jesus for help. And, and here's the thing is that with 2,000 years that have passed, you know, since these events occurred, sometimes the, the shock of what is described is gone. You know, when we read this, it's like, oh, yeah, a centurion came to Jesus and asked. You know, but, but in reality, the people that would hear this in, in that first century would say, what? A centurion came to Jesus to ask for help? Now, there, there has to be about 100 movies that have come out that have, uh, you know, been from this period of time. So anybody who's seen any one of these movies knows that, that um, you know, the Jews were an occupied people, that the Romans were there and they didn't like each other very much and things like this. So this isn't a newsflash for us, right? But, uh, but here, to, to see that one of these occupiers, as a matter of fact, an officer among these occupiers was the one who would come to Jesus to ask for help was. A centurion was one, you know, with that name, uh, with, with that root in their century, is one who uh, we know would, would be a commander of a hundred men. But in reality, a, a centurion is one who uh, could have commanded a cohort, which would be up to 480 men. It, this would be a significant officer in the Roman army. And there nearby Capernaum, there was a garrison of Roman soldiers. So the centurion would have been an officer among this garrison and this garrison of of Roman soldiers. And they were the occupiers. The Jews, if the Jews would do the Romans a favor, they would be seen as collaborators with these Romans. If the Romans, now the Romans didn't ask the Jews to do anything. They would tell them. They would command them. They would order them. But in this case, the centurion, this officer from this garrison nearby, came to Jesus and asked him if he would heal his servant. He did so as the Jews stood by and watched, wondering what was taking place and what Jesus might do. Now, the centurion's request wasn't for himself. It was for his servant or his slave. The the Greek word could mean either one. And uh, his request says something about the centurion because he loved this person so much that he would go out and he would humble himself in front of the very people that he was supposed to have authority over, that he was supposed to be commanding and, and, uh, and controlling. He would humble himself before the eyes of those people by coming to Jesus to bring him this request for this dearly loved servant or slave this friend of his. But why? Why Jesus? Why humble himself publicly? Why do this? Because the centurion believed in Jesus. The centurion had faith in Jesus, faith that stunned even Jesus. So he said, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Have you ever been stunned by faith? I have. You know, and there's all kinds of faith and all kinds of things. Remember the, the first time that I had ever seen anybody bungee jumping. 
You know, you see, anybody here ever bungee jump? Okay. What? (laughs) Say, Lynn, uh, yeah. Okay, bungee jumping. No, I've never bungee jumped, but but the first time I ever saw anybody bungee jumping was um, at an amusement park, and they had this, this, I don't know, crane tower kind of a thing set up with a platform up there, and these, these people would, you know, jump off this thing with the cord attached to them, screaming all the way down. And, and I, I said to this, this person that was next to me, I said, wow, now that is the definition of faith, you know. And I don't have that much faith, by the way. You know, it's not faith in God, but it's, it's, it's faith in that bungee jump operator that, that the bungee jump operator would have the cord at the right length, that it would be the right strength, that, you know, all of these kinds of things, that they would be putting their life in this person's hands. And I think that that's a pretty good definition of faith, isn't it? To put your life in, in somebody else's hands. Well, in, uh, in this case, uh, you know, the, the, the centurion was really putting his life, as well as the life of this friend of his, this uh, servant of his, into Jesus' hands. And uh, he was putting his own reputation into Jesus' hands as he stood before these other people. And he came to Jesus with this kind of a request and humbled himself before him. Well, so that Jesus offered to go to the centurion's home. But as it says in Matthew 8, the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this. And he does it. The centurion not only believed in Jesus, but he believed that Jesus could heal his servant on the spot. He didn't need to move a muscle to be able to heal his servant. Which is this. He's he's saying that he agrees really with what Paul is saying in Ephesians 6, which is what we've been studying here on on Sundays, uh, where Paul describes this as being a spiritual battle that we are in during this evil age. That it's, it's a battle against the forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. It's a spiritual battle, and the centurion is recognizing that Jesus doesn't need to move from the spot because he, he can order things to take place in the spiritual realm, which will impact things in the physical realm, such as his servant and his servant's health. And besides that, the centurion doesn't want to put Jesus into a difficult spot, which is exactly what this would be. Because if a Jew, you know, the custom was, the understanding was that Jews must not associate it with Gentiles, and they must not go on to or into the home of a Gentile. And that's exactly what Jesus would be doing. They don't get much more Gentile than a Roman officer. So he said, you don't have to come into my house. You can heal him right here. And Jesus said, man, I've never seen faith like this. And it goes on to say this, that the centurion's slave or servant was healed at that very hour by the power of faith in Jesus. The centurion, in Paul's terms, was strong in the Lord because he was carrying the shield of faith. Now, these last several weeks, what we've been doing is taking a look at what Paul describes as, as being the, the things that we need to put on like as though they were these articles of a, a Roman soldier, such as this centurion's armor, these spiritual characteristics, you know, the, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes that are the, the feet of the gospel of peace. And now he talks about the 
shield of faith. That if you want to be strong during this evil age, put on the shield of faith, which is exactly what the centurion had done. And when the centurion would lead his men into battle, what he would do is he would drill them in the proper use of a shield in uh, the course of that battle. And the Romans, for the Romans, the shield uh, uh, had a particular function that was, uh, that was really very specific. It would require some, some drilling to uh, train the soldiers to be able to use the shield. shield itself would weigh about 22 pounds. It was about three and a half feet high, rectangular in, in shape, and it would bend back slightly to try to uh, cover the soldier. It was a large, large shield. When the uh, Roman army would meet up with the enemy, depending upon how uh, the formation of the enemy and how many Roman soldiers there might be, they would form at least two lines where uh, the front line would stand shoulder to shoulder so that the shields would touch one another all the way down the line. So they would create this, this wall of shields in front of them. But there was one problem, and that is that the, uh, while they could protect themselves in the front with these shields, uh, the enemy would hurl stones and arrows at them from above that could still get over the shields and strike them from above. So the second line, the line that was in the back, their job was to lift up their shields over the heads of the line in front of them and the line behind them. So now there was a wall in front and a wall over them. And when the uh, enemy would charge into them, they would part the shields just enough to be able to get the short swords through the shields to be able to strike at the enemy. It was an extremely effective tactic. As a matter of fact, if the Roman soldiers were completely surrounded by the enemy, what they would do is form a square where the uh, soldiers would be lined up in this square and the outside of the square then would have those shields lining all the way around. The inside of the square would have the soldiers with the with these shields above their heads, so that this thing was you know would kind of look like a turtle, you know, with uh, the wall above and the wall all the way around, and it was this Im- almost impregnable fortress that they would create with their shields. It was an incredibly effective kind of a tactic. Now in those days, you know, it was mainly hand to hand fighting, but the Romans would fight in this coordinated manner, and uh, and yet even a a strong the strongest hand-to-hand fighter out there could still be brought down by an arrow or a projectile that was shot from above. In Old Testament times, they didn't fight in the way that the Romans fought. And what they would do is more uh, freelance, where they would have small shields and they would just engage in these hand-to-hand, this hand-to-hand combat. They were supposed to have you know, partnered up so they would protect each other's back and things like that. But it wasn't this coordinated effort where they would fight side by side or with the shields over their heads. And in one particular battle recorded in the Old Testament, the king of Israel and the king of Judah were going to battle against the king of Aram. And the king of Aram instructed his soldiers, go find the king of Israel and kill him. And his soldiers will scatter. Well, the king of Israel got wind of this and he, and he decided to disguise himself as just a common soldier. So it was very difficult for these soldiers from the king of Aram to find him. But out there in the battle, a stray arrow came up, hit him, struck him, and killed him. And that's the kind of thing that could happen in those days. But it didn't happen as often among the Romans because they had this shield fortress all the way around them that would protect them from these arrows that were, that were sent from afar. Now, 
uh, if we look at this, what we can say is that the, the point here is not just the shield, but what are these arrows? What would they stand for? What, what arrows might be shot at us from the enemy that the shield of faith might provide protection from? Well, if we look at it, we, I think we can find these kinds of arrows. First of all, what we can see is the arrow of doubt. That, uh, well, in the beginning, Satan pulled back his bow and fired an arrow at Adam and Eve, where he said, did God really say? And he sowed the seeds of doubt in Adam and Eve that ultimately led to their rebellion against God. Doubt is something that can come if you do not have faith, if you do not have the shield of faith. And these days, Satan still shoots that arrow, that arrow of doubt. We live in an increasingly secular culture that seems to be working overtime to write God out of daily life and out of the history books. So this is the, the culture in which we swim. This is where we are. And without faith, as we try to navigate this culture, what can happen is that doubt can infect us like that arrow that is shot to drive through our heart and keep us from the Lord. So Paul says, raise your shield. Rely on the shield of faith, which will defend against such an arrow of doubt. Second is the arrow of apathy. Now, apathy really is the opposite of faith, not doubt. Doubt, you can actually be wrestling with matters of faith. But apathy just simply says that, well, it doesn't really matter. You don't care. And, uh, well, think about it, okay? Let's Let's say that you're about to do something risky, real risky. Let's say you're going to go bungee jumping with Lynn, okay? You're going to go bungee jumping, jump off this platform up here, okay? And, and as you're about to uh, climb up to this platform, you've got three people there. Your, your kid looks up at you and says, I believe in you. You can do this. I know you can do this. I believe in you. And your brother-in-law is there, and your brother-in-law looks at you and says, there's no way you're going to do this. Uh-uh, ain't happened. I don't believe it. And then your spouse is there, and your spouse looks at you and says, I don't care if you jump off this thing and go splat on the pavement. I'm going to buy a corn dog. Now, which response would hurt the most? Probably apathy, right? Because at least doubt kind of engages you a little bit, you know. Um, but, but apathy says that... Well, you don't even care. Well, apathy has a particularly cruel uh, effect on your relationship with God, as it would, you know, on you. When a person says that they believe in God and then their actions demonstrate that God doesn't really matter to them, they've been struck by the arrow of apathy. Their lifeblood is draining out, and they don't even know it. Before long, the strength of God that could have been theirs is gone gone. Apathy is dangerous because it's so subtle. It can be this arrow that's launched high into the sky, and you can look at it and say, that's not going to hit me. Or even if it does, it's not going to hurt. Not a problem. person convinced themselves that what they say trumps what they do. Say that they believe in God, but then live as though God doesn't matter. Meanwhile, the arrow of apathy comes and it strikes 
and drains their lifeblood, their soul, their spirit out into the dusty ground while they wallow in self-deceit. But this arrow cannot penetrate the shield of faith. It cannot make it through the shield of faith. can't do it. If you have faith, you cannot also have apathy. If the centurion was following apathy, he would have stayed home. But faith made his feet go to where Jesus was, that his servant might be healed. Apathy is an arrow shot by the enemy. Third is the arrow of pride. We live at a time of great pride. And by pride, we're not talking about you showing off the pictures of your grandchild at the soccer awards ceremony. Okay, it's not that kind of pride we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of pride that says that Uncle Bob is bowling in heaven with Jesus right now simply because you say Uncle Bob is bowling in heaven with Jesus right now as though you are the one who could dictate and control such things. That's pride. Or pride is um, um, the attitude that says that life is really all about me. And really, the sooner that we all around here figure that one out, the sooner we're going to have peace around here because, you know, life is really all about me and my rights and, and it's, 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 you know, all pointed inward here. And there's the pride that says that I am the one who is judge and jury over other people. And a lot of times when people think of judge or judgmentalism, what they think of is declaring somebody guilty, but judge and judgmentalism also has to do with declaring somebody innocent. That's a judge. And that says that I am the one who's in charge. I'm the one who's God. That there is a God and I am it. I am the one. But really, pride is irrational. Both you and I know that we're not God, right? We know that. You know, it's ridiculous to think that we're God. It's irrational. Pride makes us act as though we are God, and that leads to some pretty costly mistakes in this life and in our culture. But the centurion wasn't prideful. The centurion was humble. He was humble. He knew that there was a God, And he wasn't that God. He knew that there was one who could heal his servant, and he wasn't it. He knew that he needed to humble himself before Jesus because he had that shield of faith. The shield of faith can protect us from pride because it says that I have faith, trust in this other one. Now, to have such faith, we need to train ourselves as the centurion would train his soldiers, as he would train those in his command. The Roman legions conquered most of the known world because they were better trained, better equipped, and better disciplined than their enemy. For us to taste victory, we need to do the same. And yet, Christians have a tendency to allow their shields to drop, their training to falter, and dryness of faith to overtake their life, allowing them to be struck by these arrows that have been sent by the enemy. Oftentimes, Christians will even go back to the old tactics, the ones of fighting not in a coordinated manner side by side, but instead solo, on their own, which means vulnerable to the arrows of the enemy. When instead we fight as the Romans did with their shields of faith, what we do is this. The Romans would have the shield there to protect not just themselves, but the soldier to their left, to their right, and to their front and their back. 
So that when we use the shield of faith, what that means is that there might be times when we will falter in this faith thing. But when we falter, then the person next to us has our back, has our head, has our sides, covering us with their faith. And we likewise, with our shield of faith raised, are the ones who cover those who are around us. We need to fight with the soldiers around us. We need to coordinate this with the people who are next to us, which means doing the very thing that you are doing right now. You may not have thought of this when you got up this morning and you came here, but you are soldiers of the cross who are here to support one another with the shield of faith and to be supported in your journey through this life. So raise the shield of faith. If you need more faith, pray for it. Whatever the cost might be, it's worth it to be able to raise that shield of faith. Then when the day of evil comes, you will be found after the dust has all cleared, to still be standing in this battle. Shield of faith in hand. The arrows will not harm you. They will not bring you down. Because by faith, by faith, you carry the strength of the Lord. Amen.